Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out that on Google, Spotify, Apple, and uh, plenty of other uh, podcast platforms. And uh, most importantly, though, uh, you can also check it out at Sonic Cinema. Also, uh, check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon. Uh, Last month, I went through the growth of the James Bond character during the uh, Daniel Craig years, and uh, this month, I'm going to be talking about the Tommy Jarvis trilogy in the middle of the uh, Friday 13th series. That's at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. And I do also do some live streaming on uh, twitch.tv backslash scuttlelemur, so... Uh, it's been a bit erratic, but I hope to uh, have you check that out when I'm on there. So it's this this past July, and I was it, it's it's a shame that I feel like I need to start this episode like this. Um, this past July, we lost the director Richard Donner, who's been a favorite of mine for a number of years, and. Uh, because we were, and I say it's a shame that we have to start this way, because I've actually, uh, my guest and I have been talking about doing this uh, episode for well over a year now, and uh, it is a discussion of the Omen trilogy from 1976, which Richard Donner began with that classic film, through 1981, and Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Um join me to discuss the film and you know we're it's going to be funny we're going to probably be discussing a lot of the same things we discussed in July with when Richard Donner passed away and uh joining me on the podcast though is uh Phil Faso. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thank you as always for having me, Brian. Um I you know it's it's interesting that it seems like more than any other franchise and even like even action franchises it feels like horror is the most prone to franchises and i think i think part of that is because of the fact that um obviously there's marketing there's box office success for studios who want to just catch up cash in on something that was cheap to make and made a lot of money um but it's interesting, the, the idea of franchises in the uh, horror genre goes all the way back to the universal horror movies of the 1930s and 40s. The Omen trilogy, and there's, there's actually a TV movie in addition to this, in addition to the uh, 2006, uh, the lousy 2006 remake that's basically just the, a new version of the 1976 film. The Omen trilogy is kind of interesting because of the fact that it's got a natural progression to it, but at the same time, I uh, you you could also see the first film just being kind of a one-off that got that happened to be a big hit. Um, Phil, what is it about this franchise that uh, that resonated with you so much? Well. I'll talk to you about Friday the 13th real quickly, okay? So, <laughs> Friday the 13th, this is why I love the Omen trilogy. Friday the 13th is the perfect example 
of a franchise that is a flat line. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it technically follows the adventures of Jason Voorhees, not really the first film, obviously, which is set up for later, but the greatest character development you have over 12 films, I guess it is in the Friday the 13th is when Jason comes back as a zombie. <laughs> so the only real progression he has is he dies and comes back. It's a flat line. Yeah. Whereas with the Omen trilogy, you have an actual progression for the character. Like there's growth from movie to movie. Now, obviously there's gaps and time changes and he ages along the way, but you're following a character's progression and his maturation. And, you know, that maturation toward basically the Armageddon and the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it starts off with a five-year-old who's basically here to bring hell on earth. And the kid's not even aware of it. And I don't think there could be a more frightening concept to me in all, all of horror than that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the movies, the quality of the movies after the first one are not quite up to the same level. And we'll talk about that as we get into it. Yeah. But as a franchise, I love it. I think it's great. And it's always been my favorite horror franchise. Yeah, and it and it's interesting because you and I have gone back and forth as I've uh, watched the sequels, and this is my first time watching anything beyond the Richard Donner film. Uh, you know, it's like you and I have gone through it. it you know, you you and I kind of see the sequels in terms of their relative quality uh, very much the same way, and uh, so it's it's interesting to. Here, here. This is your favorite movie fran- horror franchise in in that respect. But honestly, I kind of understand it because of the fact that, um, you know, the the Omen, the nineteen seventy six movie, which turns forty five this year, is such a such a powerful uh, statement out of the gate that um, even if the second and third films in the series don't quite stick the landing the way that you would hope they would it's like you said it's that maturation that interest in damien as he's going towards his 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 destiny and bringing the end times uh that that really is the compelling driving force of the trilogy so i mean really i mean yes obviously taken as individual movies the quality of two and three don't necessarily uh, hold up to what we got in the original, but at the same time, you're you're more interested in well, what is this what is this movie doing in terms of developing Damien further? And uh, you know, yeah, Friday Thirteenth. I mean, you you made a good and that is a very good point. Although, as I said, I mean, patron patrons will get my thoughts on the Tommy Jarvis trilogy, which is one of the most weird digressions a franchise has ever gone to. It's like, oh, in the middle of this eight, ten movie arc, we're going to have a little trilogy here, too. Uh, and uh, there, there's a lot to talk about. And it's funny because I haven't seen two parts of that trilogy in a long time, so I'm looking forward to those rewatches. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like, it's... The the thing that we I I think one of the things that's really kind of interesting about this is that 
this is really the start of horror movies starting to get franchised again. Because, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre hadn't had his sequel yet. Psycho had not had its sequels yet. And then uh, the Damien, The Omen 2, came out uh, around the same time as Halloween did. And, and then Omen 3 came out a year after... Friday thirteenth. So I mean, you're starting to see, you're starting to see this modern idea of what horror is really seep into this franchise. Even though it, it very much is still in the same vein of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist in terms of how they sort of bring the supernatural into horror. Well, it's it's I've read a lot about this and part of the reason is that you know you get this whole reemergence of Satan in movies and it's kind of the I guess it's pretty much the beginning of the satanic panic era in yeah in yeah. in horror movies and movies in general mm-hmm. and part of that is the turmoil that's going on in the country at the time in America you know, you have the whole Nixon scandal, you have Watergate, you have gas prices going through the roof. And they kind of make reflections on that. The Omen, when when Jennings is talking to um to Robert, you know, about how the world's kind of on a downslide at that point. And I think that it's easy for if you're gonna go into the supernatural realm to say, hey, listen, you know, the world is in a terrible spot right now, you know. And basically, this would be the perfect time for Satan to slide in and take over. Yeah. Well, and it's so fun. a big part of it is what's going around at the time and the environment politically in the world and whatnot. And yeah. I think that's a big part of why those movies became so popular. Well, and it is funny because of the fact that, I mean, it was like the omen to a certain extent, it proceeds like I, I've. I've read a lot about Satan Panic over the past few years because of the fact that I've sort of I've I've been intrigued by how much of that is sort of replicated in the uh QAnon conspiracy theory going around and how basically QAnon is essentially just a modern day version of Satanic Panic. And uh, you know, it's it's funny because of the fact that the Omen movies really almost precede the the rise of satanic panic in America, but at the same time you did have people you did have the moral majority, you did have fault people like Jerry Falwell starting to and other televangelists starting to exert their influence on American culture. And so yeah, I mean it it's completely informed by that. But I mean, it's, you know, I mean, The Omen is a movie that is also, you know, you can see it as, oh, this is the, the Exorcist was one of the biggest horror movies ever made. Let's see what we can do as far as combining faith and horror and religion into this idea. And the part of the reason why the first, Omen works so well, and we can go ahead and get into the first Omen, is the fact that they did make that 
they did make that such an intriguing idea, and they also made it as much of a mystery as they did a horror movie. And I I think that's that's one of the most important aspects to uh, why The Omen works as well as it does. Well, building on what you said before we get into the actual film, I don't think that The Omen exists without Rosemary's Baby. And I don't think that the Roman, I don't think that the Omen exists without the exorcist, but here's why the Omen resonates with me more than those flicks. Okay. The, um, Rosemary's baby is basically about a woman who's going to give birth to a devil child. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's one kid. Yeah. When you get to the exorcist, which I've never been a fan of, but that's a whole different story. When you get to the exorcist, it's about one, 12, 13-year-old girl being possessed and some priest trying to come and clean it out, right? Yeah. Those are basically isolated incidents that affect a few people. Mm-hmm. Whereas The Omen is talking about bringing hell on earth, <laughs> the end of days, and this is the end for all of us because of yeah. one child. So, yeah. I don't think those that exist without, that The Omen would exist without those flicks, but I also think it, it ups the level considerably. Yeah. No, that is that is an excellent point. It's been a while. Admittedly, it's been a while since I've seen Rosemary's Baby, and I I, I go back to The Exorcist every few years or so uh, during the month of October. And uh, but yeah, the this was the first. So it's funny because you and I both had the same kind of impulse to watch The Omen the day Richard Donner passed away. And yes. now, granted, I part of the reason why I watched it was because I knew this discussion was coming up, and so I wanted to at least get that process started of watching the movies. And then it, it's funny, like you you messaged me uh, later as we were, you know, you you messaged me later in the night, and it's like, man, I really wish we were having that Omen discussion. So that's kind of how our live stream talking about Richard Donner got going because of the fact that it's like I was already interested in talking about Richard Donner on the live stream the night after he passed away. And then you came in with like, oh man, I wish we were having that discussion. It's like, well, you want to join me? It's and so we had really nice we had really lovely discussion on Richard Donner. And um you know you can listen to that. That is on the uh YouTube Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. So you can listen to that. Um, I, you know, Richard Donner is one of, Richard Donner is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. I always hoped that we would get one more movie out of him after, uh, 16 Blocks. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny because this is one of his most famous movies, but it's also one of the ones that I'm not as familiar with because I haven't revisited it quite that much, and then when I when I found a box set that had the uh, trilogy on it, it's like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, we're gonna be talking about the Omen, so I might as well pick this up. And then I rewatching it, I I I was so much. I don't know what was the first time that I just I didn't I respected it. and I really liked it. I don't think I loved it this time. I really loved it. And really, it boils down to. Um, seeing just the the brute force authenticity of what Donner puts on camera, 
because even though this is this is a very weird, wild, supernatural experience, is also played very genuinely because it's it plays in addition to the religious aspect, in addition to the idea of oh my god, I my son is the antichrist. It also deals with, and this is another. This is a huge part of the reason why I think the film works as much as it is. My son is that something happened, and my son is not my son. And I think that is one of the things that works so well, and that's part of the reason why having Gregory Peck in the role of uh, Thorne is so important because of the fact that he can sell that anxiety around his children. And I, I think that is just brilliant. Well, two things on that. First, I found it fascinating back when I got my first DVD player in 2000, I think it was. Yeah, it was 2000. And the Omen, hadn't, the Omen trilogy hadn't come out yet. That was at the, like the cusp of DVD. So you, yeah. I was waiting for my, all my favorites to come out. Like some of them were already out, but a lot of them I had to wait on. So when I got the Omen trilogy, that I believe I bought it on Halloween that year, and I watched the whole thing. But the the documentaries are fascinating because, especially because you know I'm looking at the Omen since I'm a little kid and saw it the first time as a horror movie. Richard Donner never really saw it that way. Yeah. Richard Donner saying, "Hey, you know what? What if this is just the worst day in the guy's life? His kid dies. His wife is going to be devastated. She's she's probably never going to be able to have kids again." And he takes this kid and then he's got to live this lie because the whole thing is that had he been upfront about it with her, this would be a whole different thing. Had he not accepted the kid, this would have been a whole different thing. Yeah. So Richard Donner doesn't even look at it as it's a horror movie. Richard Donner looks at it as if, hey, this guy made a bad decision and he's living with that. And this is a series of coincidences that don't necessarily say that this is the devil's kid at all. Mm. I, I don't look at it that way. Right? I don't look at it that way at all. I look at it as, hey, this is hell on earth. This kid's got to be put away. So I want you to stab him with these seven blades and end them, you know? But the whole thing is that Gregory Peck, at the time that he took the role, had just lost his son. His son, I believe, was suicide. I could be wrong mm. on that. But I know his son had recently died. And, you know, Richard Donner was like, I can't. Like, this is a script where this guy is going to end himself trying to kill the kid i can't present this to him and the, and peck's agent said look let me show it to him and see what he thinks i think because he hasn't acted since the sun died he's taking some time off i think he might be interested and he was and he took the role mm -hmm. and that is that casting like not just him you have him you have billy whitelaw you have um you have uh lee remick you have some great actors in that movie that up the level on it incredibly because they're not playing it like some garbage cheap horror movie. They're playing it like this is a real film, yeah. you know? But having Peck cement that as Robert Thorne is aces for that movie. Mm -hmm. And if you had a different actor playing it, I will talk about Bill Holden in the second one. But if you have a different actor playing that role, I think that you're, you're, you're rolling the dice on it being a much lesser movie because Gregory Peck is a great actor and he's absolutely committed to that role yeah no ab absolutely and um you know i had forgotten i had forgotten that the film essentially starts off with 
the lie that Pat tells his wife that this is their son. I had forgotten about that. And in the back of my head throughout the film, I'm wondering, it's like, so as things start to progress, it's like, do we think that their actual, instead of dying in childbirth, do we think that their actual child was killed instead? And you kind of find out that that is kind of what happened. And um, it's, it's just the fact that this is built on mystery that Peck has to find out. And it's, it's one of the reasons... Well, I mean, it's it's one of the reasons that one of the key choices in Damien Omen 2 works so well, but it's also one of the reasons that I think that movie is kind of, that movie is also kind of very frustrating because of the fact that it essentially is rehashing the same level of discovery in the original and, you know, not really giving us a chance to, you know, not really giving the characters a chance to be characters in their own right. Um, but yeah, the I had forgotten the lie that uh, Peck has to uh, tell his wife, and it's it's just such a great touch. And the the screen the screenplay in this movie is as much of a key as uh, Donner's direction, and uh, it it really just captures. It it captures exactly what we, uh, what you kind of hope this a Richard Donner movie will capture, which is a degree of authenticity, and I that's that's one of the great things that, and like you said, the idea that he looked at this as a domestic drama more more than a horror movie, it says everything. Well, yeah, it's definitely about the approach. And Richard Donner had, you know, he'd he'd done a bunch of TV before this. He'd done, I think, a few movies. I know that there's a movie called, I think it's Salt and Pepper that he did with, because um, that that preceded this as well. But this is Richard Donner's big break. Yeah. I mean, this is him coming into his own, and then from this he gets Superman, and then everything rolls from Superman. So, I mean, it's it's great that a great director was able to... And this is his really only foray into horror. Yeah. You know, he locked in, like, George Romero and John Carpenter. A lot of those guys come out with a big horror movie, sometimes their first movie, and then all of a sudden, that's their career. Mm-hmm. And they can't break out. Richard Donner was able to do pretty much anything. I mean, look at his movies. He, he did... Following The Omen, which is a horror flick, he did probably the greatest superhero movie of all time and you know you can look at marvel and dc universes today and you can draw a direct line from superman in 1978 oh yeah you know he makes he makes action flicks he makes the lethal weapon series after this you know he makes goonies which is a you know a a kid adventure you know he's able to do all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. and like you said earlier it's a shame that he didn't get one last movie out before he, he passed but his his catalog is just we're blessed that he was able to do as much as he did in the time he was given, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean even even a lot of his even some of his uh, other movies that aren't as well known, like he he did a lovely little uh, character drama in 1980 called Inside Moves. And I mean it, you know, it's funny because I had to have been made after he got fired from Superman two quote-unquote Superman 2, because they filmed the two, they were essentially filming the two back-to-back, 
I mean, you you kind of feel that he's he's sort of figuring him, working his way through those those emotions of what happened with that experience. Since you know, we you you mentioned uh, that it's like you know he 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 didn't he wasn't around necessarily he well he wasn't around for the omen two but he was he was an executive producer actually on the omen three and um i think that's part of the reason and we'll get to it by I me mean, as part of the reason why i think omen three probably is more successful than the omen two because of the fact that donner was at least back in some capacity to sort of go oh this you know, this is probably how it should, how this narrative would, should work. And, uh, but yeah, he, he was just such a wonderful actor. He's such a wonderful filmmaker. And I mean, everything I heard about him was just, he was the, the nicest guy and such a talented filmmaker. I mean, he, he will, he will thrived in the earlier Hollywood and uh you know it, it's kind of a shame that he didn't really that like as the superhero franchise that the superhero landscape that as you said and he basically helped pave the way for with uh Superman the movie he he just didn't really have a place in that Hollywood yeah but you know the thing is that Donner's career, I think Donner's career was even better because because of that, because he was able to do so much mm-hmm. and able to do so many different types of things. He never got typecast and anything, never got caught up in any particular genre. And it's just like, you, I could see him being a great horror director because The Omen is just out of the blocks. It's just a stellar film. Yeah. And part of that is because, you know, we talked about Rosemary's Baby and we talked about The Exorcist before. And part of the thing with The Exorcist is I've never been able to get into it partially because it's about this foul mouth. You know, you have a, a 13, 12, 13 year old who's foul mouth. She's masturbating with a cross. She's spewing fucking, oh, pardon my language, she's spewing vomit, green pea soup all over the place. The Omen is not that. The Omen is the exact opposite of that. Even though it's got some some brutal deaths in it, The Omen is a classy movie. Yeah. From actors to the writing to the way it's shot to the score by Jerry Goldsmith, everything about it is just next-level class. You know, it's a classy film. Mm-hmm. I think that's directly related to Donner because, you know, Donner comes from an earlier generation where, you know, films weren't. You know, and, and we talked about Omen 2 and 3. We'll get into those later. But the whole thing is that it's not just a gore fest. It's not, you know, it's it's not, it's not just a horror movie. It's it's a real movie. It's a yeah. film, you know. Yeah, and and the story just basically the story basically just builds. That first death in the movie is very intense and very sudden. It's not gory. It's and then the the way the way they build the character of Damien, the way that performance builds that maybe, you know, we're starting to see some of this malevolence that he's supposed to have. And it's, it's interesting. Like it's, it's probably one of the best sort of unheralded child performances. Like you don't really hear, when you when you hear about great child performances, you don't really hear about the omen that much. 
but you probably should because of the fact that that performance is so effective and that performance just conveys so much in the character it's it you know that 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 performance has to go up against people like Lee Remick and Gregory Peck and it does I think part of the reason that Harvey Stevens doesn't get the I mean everyone thinks of Damien when they think you know devil kids and stuff but they never really think of the performance is that he's got almost no dialogue in the entire film yeah which is really strange because he's five years old at that point and five-year-olds normally you know they're old enough to talk but he almost never says anything you know he's he's a very you know he's just he's kind of like a blank slate which makes him even scarier because he could be any kid at that point you know mm-hmm. yeah no, and I, I think that's... I didn't even think about the fact that he doesn't really say anything because you're right, like, five-year-olds at that age, I mean, they're... Yeah, I mean, they're they're very chatty, which, I mean, it shows just how off from everything Damien is. And, you know, I mean, in it's... If we're talking about the, the Omen trilogy in a progression of the character of Damien, like, the Omen is one of the ideal places is having him at that age. Obviously it's like, you know, they've lived with this kid for five years and, you know, but they're just now all of a sudden these, these weird things are happening now. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's one of those things, um, where, uh, it, it just, you, you see the progression from, Damien in this film, and then you see The Omen Part 2. I mean, seeing as though we're talking about the trilogy in general, I mean, we can, you know, we, we can sort of talk talk about it in, not necessarily in linear order, but, uh, you know, Damien in The Omen 2 is, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I, I sort of complained to you where I I felt like, he should have been much more front and center in the movie compared to where he was in the actual movie. Like Damien, it's called Damien the Omen 2. Why is Damien not the main character of the movie? Why are we following William Holden's character who, oh, by the way, he happens to be the brother of uh, Gregory Peck's character. That's very convenient. And, you know, and he essentially has this same he basically has the same arc that Peck did in the first one, but at the same time we're also seeing going back and forth with Damien at military school and you know you start to see him uh have these ha have these realizations, have these surprises about his natural being, and then he has a revelation about his 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 true um, his true place in the world, and it's like there's nothing, but there's nothing personal in this movie that ground it like there was in the first one. And you know, thankfully, in the Omen Three, he's an adult. He's basically the main character, and he also happens to be played by Sam Neill, who is 
just such a fantastic actor. So uh, we're naturally going to get uh, great work from him in in that one. So I'll tell you a little bit about William Holden. William Holden is one of my favorite actors, and I think that what happened with him and the Omen trilogy just doesn't work for a particular reason, right? So before they went to Peck, they went to a whole bunch of different veteran actors to ask them if they wanted to take part in the Omen and, you know, play Robert Thorne. William Holden was on that list, and they offered him the role, and William Holden turned it down. Hmm. Now, Holden's career was on a downslide at that point. Yeah. 1981, SOB is a hysterical flick. It's one of my favorite Bill Holden flicks. It's so odd because it's Blake, um, Blake, Blake Edwards, Edwards, and it's yeah. just... It's a seething. It goes. It, it goes back all the way back to Hollywood. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Sunset Boulevard, because it's a scathing look at the inside of Hollywood, and it's a perfect way for Holden to end his career. But Holden's gonna slip. Uh, Holden's gonna get drunk in about a year or so after The Omen Two comes out, or maybe maybe two three years, and he's gonna hit his head on a on a dresser, and he's gonna die. Try, he's going to bleed out, basically, because mm-hmm. he's an alcoholic. So he's in a bad spot in his career at this point. You know, he's on the downslide. He wanted to get nominated for the Oscar. Actually, he might have been nominated for... Um, he was nominated, I think, for... Um, I can't remember. The one with the news movie that they made, the fitting one, the famous one that Patty Krzyzewski wrote. Network. Well, anyway, he was nominated. Network. Network, yes. He was nominated for Network, but the guy who played the opening windows we're not going to take it anymore that guy died and i read in holden's biography that holden as soon as he died was like oh my god i'm not going to win this oscar now they're going to give it to him (laughs) so seeing how successful the omen was and how many people went to see it and how popular flick it was once he found out that damien omen 2 was going to come on he jumped and went to fox and said listen i want this role yeah so I don't think, as much as I love William Holden, I don't know if it would have been the same with his performance had he been in 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 the Omen. Mm-hmm. I think Peck. I think I think that's something we don't want to tamper with because you know Peck did such a great job. But I also think that in the Omen, in Damien Omen two, you know, it follows Holden's character. Holden looks lost the entire film. Yeah, he looks like he's disengaged. He looks like, why am I here? What am I doing? You know. And you can see it in his performance. Mm-hmm. Now, a huge part of why Damien Omen 2 doesn't work for me is because half the freaking film is about Thorn Industries. Yeah. I don't care about them selling grain to, to, to Europe. I don't no. care about them seeding fields in India to keep the Indian, you know, to help spurt the, the economic growth in India. It's so freaking boring. <laughs> it's so boring. And then it's like, okay, well, Thorn Industries, well, Thorn Industries is run by this guy who happens to have the devil's kid. While he's the mid period of his is finding out about his awakening about being the devil. Like it just none of the individual elements work. No. And why is he in a military school? Like the military school thing really doesn't play into it at all. Okay, so you have Lance Henriksen. Henriksen is great in the limited time he's on screen. And he's the one who kind of says, hey, Damien, you know, read the Bible and you'll find out what this is all about, you know, why yeah. you're feeling the way you feel. But really, none of it, like, it just comes unglued very quickly and none of it really works. No. And, and the thing is, it's like, I mean, 
yeah, there's absolutely no reason for the Thorn Industries stuff at all. There really isn't. Like, it doesn't build... It doesn't necessarily build to anything in particular because of the fact that, you know, after after the reporter tells, like, his business partner, partner that he talked to her and then he takes the phone call and then... It, it's funny because it's like before her death, it's like the the business partner comes back. It's like, oh, he's so upset. It's like, well, why is he upset? Why is he so upset about something? And we never find that out. Uh, the reporter's death is absolutely absurd in this movie. It's it's it, in that movie. It's absolutely hilarious. And one thing I'm always one thing I'm I will say one thing that is interesting about this movie is that you have acolytes on both sides of the equation you have rigid you have you know you have you have the religious people who are seeing this prophecy sort of unfold and then you have the acolytes of the antichrist and it seems like lance hendrickson is one of them because he kind of he like you said he kind of he kind of tells damien it's like oh hey check out the bible check out this you know check out this um check this out and you'll understand what's going on and i will say it's like the school scene where i will say one of the scenes that's really good about the military school is that the scene where the the teacher's testing him on all the dates it's like obviously there's no kid ever who would know all of those dates and so you start to see some of this otherworldly information that Damien holds in him that nobody else, nobody in real life would ever be able to, would, would necessarily be able to spout off when they're what, like 12 years old. Cause yes. the, cause he's five in the omen. There's a pointless prologue where, you know, the only people who are, tr seem to be truly aware of Damien die. And then, it cuts to seven years later. So yeah, he's 12 in this. And I think, and one of the things that you brought up, which is when we were going back and forth is that he really should be older. I mean, especially going to military school, that would make much more sense if he'd been like 18 or if he'd been like 18 or 19, because he's 32 in the final conflict. Yes. Th that would make much more sense. Well, the whole thing is, and what, what, when we're going back and forth, I told you that that was Harvey Bernard produced all three of the omens and the fourth one, but that's a whole different story. Anyway, um, Harvey Bernard said that his one big criticism is that Damien should have been older. Like he said, hey, there's not much you can do with a 12 year old. Yeah. And I think the actor, I don't know how old the actor was. But he, he looks like he's old. He looks like he's 13 or 14. He looks a little older than 12. It's, but the whole hmm. thing is that, you know, it's just, it's supposed to, like, even the idea of awakening, you'd think would come with puberty, which 12 years old just doesn't do it. It doesn't, like, I, t I told you, none of it works. It just falls apart yeah, very quickly. And so he was, he was born in 1962. So he would have been 16 when Damien came out. Now, Grant, I mean, now you brought up something that I actually thought about as well, and the idea that, you know, the only way that this kind of works is that, oh, Damien learning who he truly is is akin to puberty. 
It's like if that's the if that's oh. the metaphor that you're playing with there, Damien need really needs to be the main character of the movie then. Because it's gotta be about Damien. It can't be about Thorn. It's it just makes no sense. Well, see, it works with the first one because, like, even when he hits, like, it's really interesting if you watch the scene where Lee Remick gets knocked over the balcony. Yeah. Because, like, he's riding along on his bicycle, and at that point, Mrs. Baylock is in there. So she is obviously the apostate. She's the one who's, you know, there to make sure that Damien is raised up properly. Which is why she keeps bringing, like, she brings a dog into the house and flips out. You know, she keeps she keeps trying to parent him and make decisions that shouldn't be hers to make, and Thorne keeps getting pissed off, right? Yeah. So anyway, she opens the door and lets him into the hallway. He rides his bike, right? He rides his little tricycle, and he hits the... Now, why should he be standing on a table over a 20-foot fall for a balcony <laughs> hanging a plant? That's a bad decision to begin with. Yes. But the whole thing is he hits the thing and then she 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 catches the, the banister, right? Mm. And she's like, Oh my god, help me, help me, Damien. And he kind of looks at her, but you know, he's five years old, so it's not like he's gonna be able to lift her and, and save her from it anyway. Yeah. But the interesting part is once she hits the ground and Damien sees what happens, he starts crying and yeah. he runs away. Because that's what a little kid would do, you know? And not only that, I mean, we, we know this isn't his mother, but he doesn't know that. He thinks this is mom, you know? Yeah. Now, when you get to, to the, the Damien Omen 2, like, not only does Damien not know what his powers are, I don't know what the freak his powers are at that yeah. point. Like, there's no, like, the whole thing with, with the first one is, okay, he's subconsciously or unconsciously knocking off all the people who are getting in his way. And trying to eliminate him, right? Mm -hmm. So the priest goes, you know, the priest goes, um, the photographer goes, eventually Gregory Peck goes, his mother goes, everyone who gets in his way is going to... And the priest says to him in the park, he says, listen, he's going to kill everyone who you love, and when he's done with all that and he thinks he can get your power, he's going to kill you. That's going to happen. Yeah. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Problem is, in... Damien Omen 2, Damien's goals are undefined because he really doesn't have any goals. Yeah. His powers are undefined. So what are his powers? Well, apparently he's got a crow now that can watch him, so he's become Eric Draven from The Crow, um, <laughs> which is a bad enough decision. And, and that, again, that scene with... Uh, like, you could tell that Donner didn't direct Damien Omen 2 just watching that scene with, with the reporter getting hit by the truck. Yeah, It's gaudy... It's it's so bad, and yeah. you can see the dummy flying, and it looks like a dummy. It's just it's awful. It's yeah. so bad, Ryan. Oh, it's but the terrible. problem is that like you get to the point where his I guess he thinks I guess he really loves his cousin, and he thinks his cousin is going to turn on him because his cousin's like, no, you're evil, you're evil, and then he kind of like force crushes his cousin's mind with Jedi powers. I don't even know. Yeah, I've seen the movie twenty times. I have no idea. <laughs> So if you're going to show that he's, he's maturing to that point, how about showing me how the maturation actually works? Yeah. And a big part of it is a lot of it is rerun from the first film. Like you said, just, hey, listen, you know, we got to have these, got to have the mystery there where, where you know, Rob, Richard Thorne's trying to figure out what happened. 
We already know the mystery at this point. We know everything. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to follow that mystery. We don't need to follow that because we already know what happens because we've seen the first one. So, and then the thing is, you got to build in now, you got to build in. See, the, the, thing about, the thing about the first one is the first one builds the high spots with the horses, right? With, yeah. with the, the death. So there's a lot going on, and then it builds, and then you have a death. And even the deaths, you know, they're pretty gruesome. But as far as horror movies go, they're also pretty restrained. And again, that goes into the whole, this is a classy movie. Yeah. This is not just yeah. some cheap-ass horror, you know? And a lot of it is is these scenes are so well done because, you know, Richard Donner directed them. He put them together and storyboarded them, and it's a reflection on him. You get to The Omen too, and again, some of it's pretty cool. Like, the guy trapped under the ice is pretty frightening. Yeah. You know, and then following him, them running along the ice and him, like, at the same speed and trying to follow him. You see him floating down the river. Like, some of that's pretty creepy. Yeah. You know, yeah. but so much of it is just poorly done. Like, Aunt Marion gets killed by a cr- I don't even know what happens to Aunt Marion. <laughs> she just kind of has a heart attack. The crow scares it. That, I mean, it's just so bad. And 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 when uh and and when Lee Grant comes in to look at her, it's like she's got this look on her where it's like, oh come on, there's no way it's just a heart attack. Come on, that is such an absurd. Like, how many people in a have a pose like that when they have a heart attack? It only <laughs> happens in horror movies. It only happens in horror movies. It only happens in cheesy horror movies. But, I mean, I will say, yeah, the reporter's death is absurd. The the doctor dying near the end in the elevator is just bonkers. Like, A, it looks cheap. It looks like it's just moving behind. It, it looks like it's just an elevator against a rear screen that's moving that's projecting the background. The background is absurd. And then you can't possibly, what elevator is not strong enough to withstand the cable going through it? (laughs) So they obviously wanted to up the gore factor in this movie, right? Yeah. That's a good point. Obviously, and again, we talked about this the other day. Part of the problem, I think, is that the first movie is Richard Donner's movie, right? Yeah. The Omen is definitely Richard Donner's. After he leaves and decides not to come back for Omen 2 because he's on his way to a stellar career, those films become Harvey Bernard. Harvey Bernard, the producer, and Harvey Bernard does not have the artistry or the sensibilities that Richard Donner has. No. So, it, and it's kind of funny, because like you said, those death scenes, they kind of predate what's coming with the 80s stuff, with all yeah. uh, the Friday the 13th and all the Ultra Gore and all that. Mm-hmm. Because, it, and then by the time you get the third one, well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but by the time you get the third one, some of the stuff in the, in, in the final conflict just leans into that whole, all right, well, it's a gore fest now, you know? Yeah. But let's talk about Lee Grant's nonsensical turn at the end that makes absolutely no sense. No, it like, doesn't. And it's like, I, at the beginning of that, when that happens, I'm like, oh, well, that's an interesting twist. And then, of course, Damien 
freaking sets her on fire. It's like, <laughs> why? It's like, I mean, okay, I under. How is so? She <sighs> basically let the die, and then he kills her. It's, it it's it's absolute nonsense. And it's like the only way. I, I think this movie, you know, I understand it to a certain extent. You want to explain what happened to Damien, who's taking care of Damien. I think the best, if this movie truly wanted to work and, like, Damien is at this age or dealing with the puberty sim metaphor, the best way this movie works is if it's just following Damon at Mil Damien at military school. Yeah, if like how, how about putting that, more than how about how about forget the rest of this. How about putting more than three scenes of him at the school? Because I think you yeah, get about three scenes. Just have Damien at the military school, you know, with his cousin and just follow that. That's because you you name the movie after him. Make him the main character for crying out loud. You don't need because I mean in the Omen three, like the the conflict of in, interest between Damien and Thorn Industries is basically already like taken care of by the by by the time he's the ambassador. And it's like, it, it's just, you don't need all of that legwork. I mean, I get, you know, if you've got somebody like William Holden saying, I want to be in this, it's like, okay, fine. Make, but make him, make him like one, the principal or the headmaster at the school then. Well, okay. So they <laughs> obviously wanted to get, See, you had Gregory Peck and you had Lee Remick in the first one. So you had the Oscar prestige, right? Yeah. So now you have William Holden, who's the best actor winner, and you have uh, Lee Grant, who I think at that point had already won an Oscar for Shampoo. So, again, it's the whole, well, how do we justify them in this script? Yeah. Okay, well, now we're going to do this whole family thing and the whole – and that's the whole setup. Of, you were talking about the scene at the beginning – the, the opening is going back to Bugenhagen, who shows up very briefly in the Omen, in yeah. the first one, and basically explains to Damien, explains to Thorne, hey, listen, you know, your kid's evil. This is what you need to do to get rid of him. Otherwise, it's going to be hell on earth. Yeah. Right? So you bring Bugenhagen back because, hey, listen, we're all calling for Bugenhagen's story to be finished. We all need to know what happens to him after the first one, right? Yeah. So you have that whole thing where him and his archaeology buddy, it's like six weeks after Thorne dies, and they see the newspaper and all that, the kid. And it's like, okay, so they find this this wall, and it's supposed to show the three faces of of Damien during his maturation. Yeah. So there's a painting of Harvey Stevens from the first one, and you find out that, you know, his kids, you know, the 12-year-old version is painted on the wall. And I guess they hadn't hired Sam Neill, so you can't paint the older version at this point, but you know it's going to be a trilogy, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, do I really need that whole scene, like 10 minutes worth of opening the film, so that, you know, William Holden can find a picture of his son, you know, painted onto some wall from 500 years ago, whatever it was, 1,500 years ago? No, you don't need any of that. Mm -hmm. As far as the Omen, Damien Omen 2 goes, like every time I rewatch it, there's one cool scene that's really well done. It's right at the very beginning, and it's Damien's introduction 
He's walking across the lawn of, I guess, whatever it is, their mansion compound or whatever. He's, and he's in his military uniform. And the way they film it, some guy that works for, you know, he's a yard worker, is burning leaves at that point. Yeah. And you see Dan come into the shot, and you see the flames come up. Mm-hmm. So right there, you know that this is the devil. <laughs> it's a cool shot. It doesn't mean much as far as the movie goes. Yeah. But I think had they made them older and focused on the military school thing, that would have been a much better movie. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right on all points there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like that is I and that's that's ultimately why Omen Three works so much better because it's about Damien. And yes. his, now part of that is also because it stars Sam Neill as Damien, which is a fantastic choice. And you know, even even though I'm not as familiar with early Sam Neill as I am with later Sam Neill, it's like I know enough about Sam Neill to know that he's a pretty great choice if you're going to cast somebody as the Antichrist. And it's like you can see him really digging into that role quite effectively. Oh, he's phenomenal. You know, and you know you're never going to get a bad performance out of Sam Neill. And he, he just, he owns that role. He's totally into it. He's committed. And, you know, he makes Damien absolutely creepy as an adult. Yeah. The whole thing where he comes behind the Christ statue and the and, and he's like fucking, it's it's really weird because he's he's like, it's it's almost like a sexual overtone because he's like rubbing his hands yeah. on the shoulders, it's touching the points, he's touching the points on the crown of thorns, and yeah. he's like basically, hey, I'm here now, buddy, I'm gonna own this place, and it's, it's just it just exudes creepiness. Yeah, it is one of the most unsettling is is one of the most unsettling scenes in the entire trilogy and it's because of how well neil plays that and uh yeah i mean this this i will say it's like 25 minutes into the omen 3 it was already much more compelling than anything we got in omen 2 and you know it just hits the ground running where it's like okay we've established that Sam Neill was Damien. Damien knows he is the Antichrist. He has some people who know he is, other people who don't know he is. And it's it's just a really uh it's it's well it's well built in that respect. And well here's the thing too. Here's the thing too, though. The whole him owning Thorn Industries plays out as it's very quick it's yeah. not like a long stretched out thing but it also plays out because not only is he now ready to take his position he's in a financial position where he's running a company that owns a great portion of the world right now yeah and he's making it look like he's a good guy like we're doing all this you know charity stuff like there's that scene where he's he's watching the commercial about thorn industries mm-hmm. and it's supposed to pump up how much charity work they do and how they're helping out worldwide yeah you know off, he's like, hey, listen, any hacker throwing this together, we need something better. You know, so he's selling the lie, which is what the devil does. He sells the lie that he's a good person. You know, he's, it's, but then he's also going to come into it, and it's really cool the way they do this. He's now going to come into his position as the, um, the ambassador to the, I think it's the Court of St. James, which is the position that Robert Thorne had yeah. in the original. Yeah. So he's going to set himself up to take his father's spot, which is exactly what the priest told uh, Thorne in the first film. 
Mm-hmm. He's going to take everything you own. And it's now 25 years or whatever after Thorne's death, and he's now coming into Thorne's place. Yeah. And it's really nifty the way they set that up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the scene there, and yeah, you mentioned that, uh, you know, in, in Omen 2 and in Omen 3, the, the violence is considerably more brutal. It's, it's a lot more in terms of gore. It's starting to build into what we're going to start seeing in terms of horror as, as in, in ways of the way the gore plays out, the, the different makeup effects and all of that. And uh, it, it really kind of, you know, and they really do kind of take on more of the structure of slasher movies than, than movies about, than sort of domestic dramas about faith and about religion. And it's like, it, it's all basically building up to the uh, conclusion of The Omen 3, where it's like Damien is trying, is ultimately trying to take his place as the Antichrist and bring hell upon Earth. Absolutely. The end of days is coming, and, and Damien's going to be the cause of it, and then he's going to rule the world. <laughs> which, which really made it kind of surprising that that doesn't really seem to happen? Well, let me talk to you real quickly about the daggers of Megiddo here, all right? Mm-hmm. So the really cool section, is, I think it opens the film, actually, where they show you, okay, so you get the burnt rubble from the the museum that that Richard and his wife were in at the end of Damien Omen 2. And then they dig up the daggers, you know, they're running through, they clean out the place, they find the daggers, they dig them up, daggers go to auction, and then a priest buys them, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is, in the first one, Thorne is told, listen, you need to use these seven daggers and use them in very specific spots, in a very specific order, in order not just to expel the kid's life, but expel Satan out of the body, right? Yeah. So through this whole process of these knives. And then you get these priests and my friend, Michael Cucinata pointed this out to me. He said this years ago and I thought it was his line, but he said that either Michael Medved or one of those guys from the eighties, you know, the, the film critics mentioned it. You get basically religion's version of the Keystone cops with these <laughs> priests that are running around and falling over themselves and yeah. falling off bridges. Like these guys seem absolutely incompetent. But I always thought it was kind of cool that, hey, listen, you know, now you have this whole thing with this this order of priests that are trying to do what religion should do, which is, you know, Christianity wants to expel the Antichrist. Makes sense, right? Yeah. But you've set up this thing through three (laughs) movies now that you need these seven daggers, and then you get to the end of the movie, and it's like, okay, so Jesus Christ just came out and, and... I, I, again, I don't really understand what happened. I think he just kind of killed Damien and took him off to the afterlife because, yeah. you know, they don't have seven daggers on him. And it's just, it's, it's like you'd think with all that build up, even if it was just the build up in that movie, you'd think that you'd need to use these daggers and ultimately they just become unnecessary in the end. Right. Right. No, and and I, I mean, I actually, you know, I I will say I actually do like the structure of this one, where it's like these the these priests who are trying to 
kill Damien and they're trying to figure out where he is and they're trying to and it, it is kind of funny that they all the ways that they all kind of fail at that um, I will say it's like the scene on the bridge during the dog hunt is really terrific I love the way that that plays out and uh, the whole it's, dog hunt scene is just it's it, the fox hunt scene is just it's a great great scene yeah the way it's set up it's just amazing. And then Damien with the whole, hey, listen, you've got your first kill. Now you need the blood on your face. You know, it's just, it's, yeah. again, it's just, it's absolutely creepy, but it's a great way to, it's, again, it's like the first one where they build up to the high points. And that's a great high point, that film. Mm -hmm. Now, and the tension builds really well in that third, in the uh, final conflict. And uh, it's, it it's just, you know, it's like it's night and day. It was night and day watching two and three because of the fact that it's like, okay, two is, you know, it's okay. It's It feels like filler. A lot of it feels like filler and a lot of it feels repetitive from the first one for obvious reasons that we've already talked about. And then the third one is like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, this is, this is definitely going in a very different direction than, uh, than, I mean, it's going in the natural direction, but it's also saying things up in a very different way that I can I can actually appreciate what it's doing here. But also, like, the whole point of it, and I love the fact that the, the first one is he's obviously oblivious because he's five years old and doesn't know he's the Antichrist. The second one, he finds out somewhere in the middle and then decides to turn on his death kill mode, right? Mm -hmm. So then you get to the third one, and now he's pure evil. Yeah. So part of his plan is to wipe out, it goes back to the Bible, it's to wipe out all the newborns because he thinks that the second coming of Christ is on its way. Yeah. And he basically says, hey, listen, now he's got acolytes, a whole bunch of apostates built up. It's not like he's got one or two like in the first couple of films. Now he says, hey, listen, we need to go kill all the kids that were born on this particular day. Mm -hmm. So right there, that's that. Now you, now you're into whole full stream evil. He's fully committed. Now he knows his path and he knows what he wants to do. And he knows that he needs the power and wants the power. Now it's a power lust thing. Yeah. Which is exactly what the devil's always been set up to be in literature and fiction and movies and the Bible. You know? Yeah. No. And I, I think this is, this is, this is ultimately where it's like, it's, it's, I can definitely, I can definitely agree with you in terms of this being a pretty, gr even though the quality of the franchise varies, it's ultimately a really great franchise because it does have, even, even though the second one kind of stalls to a certain extent, it does have a natural progression of where it's going. And that's something you certainly, you certainly don't get in Friday the 13th except for weird little, you know, part in the middle of the series. You don't, you certainly don't get in the Halloween movies, except, you know, well, that one's just a mess in terms of continuity in general that um, I, I, I haven't seen enough of them to really uh, suss out. And then you have the Nightmare on Elm Street series where, yeah, you have some character, you know, you have Nancy who comes back a couple of times and, the series, but ultimately, like Freddy's ultimately the same character, and um, well, that's the whole thing, though. If you're gonna make like my problem with a lot of sequels and a lot of of 
remakes and all that is you should always have a purpose. Like things should have a reason to exist, right? Yeah. So if you watch, like if you watch the first eight Jason, and we'll go back to Friday the 13th for a second. If you watch the first eight uh, Friday the 13th, which are the Paramount flicks, right? Yeah. It's the same movie over and over and over again, right? You get these scenes like, okay, so Jason's here. Kids went into the woods because they're dumb. A bunch of people are going to get killed violently. (laughs) Jason's going to get killed at the end, and then he's going to get brought back in the next one. Yeah. Repeat, rinse, and repeat. It's the same thing over and over again. Like, literally, Jason has no growth as a character. No. No. I, I'm telling you, literally, the only growth he has is, is you know, the only maturation, whatever you want to call it, character growth, is going from being living in the fourth one to, you know, undead in the sixth one. Yeah. That is that's funny because, you know, you get the seventh one with the psychic, you get the eighth one in New York, and you can see they're trying to fucking, they're trying to reinvigorate it and do something different, and they're making the same movie just with gimmicks now. It, so ex- it's like, excuse me, it's it's in New York for like 15 minutes, and it's not even New York, isn't it? Like Montreal or Toronto or something. Well, yes, like that. that's Jason. <laughs> ta- Jason takes the boat to Vancouver. Is basically well, that we'll talk Vancouver, about that. That's right. <laughs> but the whole thing is that you know, in the Omen, like those movies have a reason to exist because yeah. you're talking about a character and you're showing his progression <laughs> and growth and his goals and desires and why he wants to do this and how he's come about and where he wants to go and eventually whether he's going to get there or not. Well, I mean, honestly, in, in what you point out, I mean, there there's a reason, the, or a big part of the reason that the first two Friday 13ths have always been my favorite of that series is because, first of all, it's not obviously, as you and I both know and everybody, most people know, it's not Jason in the first one, it's his mother. And then yes. in the second one, it's Jason, sort of, so his mother's taking vengeance for him in the first one, and the second one is Jason taking vengeance for his mother. And yes. I love the way that they play with that in the second one. From the third one on, it's just completely ridiculous, and yeah, he, he's basically he, he's basically one-track mind of, oh, I'm just going to keep killing teenagers who come into woods and uh it's no it's absolutely absurd but no i mean it it's you know and i i say this as somebody who has a genuine affection for that franchise as well but i mean i'll completely acknowledge there are some really low let's put it this way the lowest points in the omen trilogy are far better than the lowest points in the friday 13 series i i will simply say that um but uh like I, I have issues with the Omen 2, but I can watch Omen 2 much more than I can watch like Jason Takes Manhattan again. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, so how do you feel about the ending of, of the final conflict? Like? It's, you know, it's really, it, it it's it's something. It, it makes you, it really does kind of make you think is, and it's it's definitely a bold, it's, it's really a bold way to bring the religious conflict of this trilogy back to the forefront, I think. And I, I'm, I, I, I just sat there and I was like, Oh, this is, this is, this is quite an 
ending. Now, I mean, obviously, like you've said, it, you know, it's clearly saying everything up as far as the, uh, the daggers throughout the entire trilogy. But at the same time, it's like, oh, by the way, there's this whole idea of maybe the second coming coming. And that's kind of what happens. And it's like, I, I, I love the imagery in in the ending of the final conflict, I will say, and it goes very well, and we haven't even really brought his name back into it. It really goes well with the score by Jerry Goldsmith, who won, who rightfully won his Oscar for the first omen, and uh, came back for the trilogy. And you can really, you know, it's interesting because I feel like this this would have been a franchise very e where very easily he could have just like sort of done copy paste of the same music he did for the first one, but I I think there there are some interesting thing even though the movies are not as good as the first one I think there are some interesting things in the music in the uh, second and third one that actually make me. Make me think it's a pretty interesting trilogy in that respect. Well, like you said, the interesting thing is that he didn't copy and paste. It's that there are three original scores. Yeah. And they got him, you know, Jerry Goldsmith was one of those guys that for his entire career was in high demand. You know? mm -hmm. And they got him to be in all three flicks, which is great because other than Harvey Bernard as the producer and Fox as the studio, Jerry Goldsmith is the only through line, and yeah. his music is great. I used to have, I don't think I have them anymore, but I used to have the, the all of the trilogies. It's three separate. I used to have the score for each of the three films on um, on CD, mm -hmm. and it was great because I could pop them in the car and, you know, listen, I was, I was driving around one night. But the music, like, he makes three legitimate scores, you yeah. know, and they're all very nuanced, and, you know, it's Jerry Goldsmith, so you can't go wrong. They're great scores. You know, that he doesn't just, you know, all right, well, I could just rehash what I did in the last one. Not a problem. You know, he doesn't get into that territory. And, you know, those films, like, imagine how worse that, imagine, imagine lesser that Damien Omen 2 would have been without his score if they would have gotten somebody else to score, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing, like, you know, John Williams doing the score for uh, Jaws 2. You know, and then you can definitely tell the difference between him doing Jaws 2 and then how, who, you know, how they couldn't get him back for 3 and 4, and both of those films suffer accordingly, among many other reasons why they suffer. Um, yep. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I love, one of the things that's always been, one of my favorite things out of Goldsmith as a composer is, the way he uses just various musical effects, the way he uses synthesizers, and obviously here the way he does, um, the way he uses uh, choral passages. And I mean, that's that's one of the most iconic, that is one of the most iconic aspects of his music for the Omen movies. And uh, I mean, that right there, I mean, the just immediately in the... Uh, very simple title sequence in the first omen he he's put you in a mood just a really completely unsettling mood and a very sinister mood the gregorian chants in the first film are just killer yeah the ave satani chants 
And on that, on the DVD extras for the first film, he said that basically he wrote it like it was a black mask. Yeah. So instead of having Ave Maria, Hail Maria, you know, Hail Mary, it's Ave Satani, Hail mm-hmm. Satan. And that whole thing just carries through. And it's just, I can't speak well enough about his score. I, yeah. can, I, can't, I can't promote it enough. It's just great, great work. Mm-hmm. And he definitely was well-deserved. He won a well-deserved Oscar for it. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he shouldn't have had to wait this long. I mean, I would have given it to him for uh, Planet of the Apes even before this. But and I will have given it to him later. I mean, I, I he did some terrific work later. But uh, yeah, I, his his you know it's it's interesting. It it's it's interesting how certain genres bring something out of a composer. Because I mean, he he did pretty great work for Poltergeist too later. Yes, and um, you know, the, I think there's something about. It, it's weird as as standard issue as a lot of horror movies gotten this this coming decade from like the omen on it, it's fascinating to hear see what ha- was happening musically because of the fact that it's like you had people like Jerry Goldsmith who brought brings this really bold classical approach to the omen you have John Williams who uses late motif pretty expertly in Jaws. Then you have John Carpenter who does something very unique with the use of synthesizers and very simple rhythms in Halloween that's kind of building off of the type of things that Williams and Goldsmith were doing just in a very different route. And then you have Henry Manfredini who, as generic and as bland as the Friday 13th franchise is, it's would be even more so without that iconic theme that he wrote right off the bat. And it's, it's, it's interesting to hear. And then you have somebody later in the decade and then you have somebody later in Ennio Morricone working with Carpenter on this thing. And he's doing something that you're not accustomed to him doing. Even though it sound, even though there are elements of it that sound very similar to a lot of his music, it's also something that's very outside of the rest of his filmography. And I, you know, and in, in it's you know, oh, every every October I have a playlist that I go back and I listen to of like horror scores and stuff like that. And I I love listening. It it really brings me back to listening to some of these great pieces over the years and just hearing how diverse the the composer, how versatile the genre has been when it comes to experimental music. Well, see, I've always said that horror is one of those places where you can really have you could really have a great score, and when you have a great score, it can totally transform a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like, and part of the problem is that you know so much of it is well, horror is made on the cheap. We don't need a great score, blah 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 blah. But I mean, Donner did the right thing and brought in Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith worked on Poltergeist, and it's funny because I watched the Twilight Zone the movie the other night for the first time in years. And I had forgotten that he did the score for that. Yeah. And you can definitely hear that he still got some poltergeist in his system at that yeah. point because there's definitely some stuff picking in from that. 
But I mean, you know, the score just enhances the trilogy, you know, mm-hmm. and it's another reason that it's a great, great trilogy. Look, like I said, the first film, absolutely my favorite horror film. Always has been, always will be, you know? The second film and third films, do they have their ups and downs? Absolutely. But consistently as a horror and, you know, as a horror franchise and as a, you know, a, a trilogy and all that, it's, it's pound for pound my favorite. It's, you know, the first one is classic, a classic film. It's classy. It's well-made, mm-hmm. top to bottom, performances, writing, score, you know, direction. You know, and if, if the second and third one kind of fall off in that at points, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I can live with that. Yeah. Well, and it, it you know, it, it basically goes to, you know, basically goes to the uh, fact that it's like, A, you don't have Richard Darn directing the sequels. Um, you don't have the same writer direct, writing the sequels, and that, you know, is kind of an issue. If you had one of those, pl- if you had one of those elements in place for the sequels, I I think the, the sequel is certainly, A, the second one probably has much more of a... Uh, structure that's not just rehashing the first one and then you see the natural progression of Damien from that five-year-old kid to the Antichrist without the second one that kind of just just kind of is spinning its wheels to a certain extent um, well part of the problem with the second one too is that they had a different director start the film and he'd actually directed like a week's worth of film and yeah. Harvey Bernard fired it yeah. And then Bill Holden, I forget, Graham, Graham Baker, maybe his name is? Don Taylor. A guy who act, that's it, Don Taylor, yeah. who had acted with Holden in, um, in Stalin 17. Holden's like, listen, I know this guy who can come in and direct this. And actually around that same time, he directed the, um, the Richard, um, not Richard Burton, the, well, the Michael... Oh, whatever it is. The version of um, The Island of Dr. Moreau that came out in the 70s. So he was oh, doing okay. horror at the time, and, you know, they got him in. Now, uh, did that affect the quality of the film overall? I'm sure it did at some point when you've set up with a director and all of a sudden you have to switch into filming. Yeah. I'm sure that's not great, you know? But also, you know, I just think that the way it's written, that it's, it's going to be the weak part of the entire trilogy, no matter what, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we we haven't even talked really about in terms of the first one, we haven't talked about the fantastic um scenes uh in the at the monastery and the uh cemetery in Italy, in Rome, uh where the truth of you know, where the truth is revealed about Damien and uh, their their son and what happened. And that scene is just, it is one of the best scenes in the entire trilogy in the way that it's is built, favorite, in the way it's my favorite, set. That is my favorite scene in any horror movie. It is so well done. Yeah. First off, if you're in a cemetery at night, and it's on a stage. It's not a real cemetery, but it looks really, really good. <laughs> and you have the breathing, you know, there's these breaths, and you find out that the dogs are there, and, the, you know, it, it builds. But the whole thing is that, okay, so thorns come here on a, a quest for discovery to find out what's going on, right? Yeah. He's trying to figure out if this is real or not. So he picks up, you know, they find the two cemeteries, the two graves, and he picks up, the first one, 
And he's mortified because there's the skeleton of a little baby in there. And you can see that there is a hole in the skull yeah. where they smashed the skull in. So that goes back to the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the deal. I was told that this baby just happened to be here and my baby died during the childbirth. Yeah. And that's not the case, obviously, because there's this. And then he says, oh, well, well, maybe if it's the mother and we pick it up and it's not, uh, you know, maybe this is my child. He's still trying to convince himself yeah. that he can live yeah. for a while. And then they pick it up and it's, and, and again, it's set up really well earlier on when the priest confronts him and gets thrown out because he says the mother was a jackal, but you, you can't like, it, something happens where they just, the sound is you know, like kind of cut off. And you can't really, you can, you can hear it if you listen closely. Mm-hmm. But then he listen, they lift up the tomb and there is the skeleton of a jackal. Yeah. And it's great that he frames it because he's so shocked that he drops the, 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 the tomb, the stone that's covering the tomb, and it shatters in on the thing. And Donner films it in slow motion. It's just really, really well done. Yeah. And then the dogs attack, and it goes absolutely nuts from that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's like, like I said, the omen builds those high spots and, you know, it's got a lot of good stuff going on, but once it hits those high spots, it's just absolutely intense and it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we didn't really talk about David Warner as the photographer and in the first one. And the thing that I like about his role is that at the beginning, when we first start to see him, you you start to wonder, it's like, what is it about him around? You, you, you almost think that maybe he's looking after Damien to a certain extent. And then you realize, you gradually start to realize that he's looking after Damien, but because of the fact that he has these suspicions that he's going to reveal the thorn. And I love the way that that character's developed over the course of the film. Oh, it's great. And David Warner, another great actor in that cast. And he's yeah. just perfect in that role. And it's so funny because he shows up, the first time you see him is at the party mm-hmm. when the the, uh, the first nanny kills herself. And he's like, oh, I guess we're here to, you know, anoint the new, uh, the new you know, child to the, the throne of St. You know, the court of St. James, right? Yeah. Then shows up right before the priest shows up to talk to, um, to Thorne the first time. And that's where Thorne knocks his camera over and his camera breaks. And he says, hey, listen, oh, just tell my aides they'll get you a new camera. And he says, well, let's just say you owe me one. Mm-hmm. And that's how he gets him involved and gets him to come and he explains the whole thing. Yeah. So it's crucial. It's, it's, really, it's really innovative the way they get him in the plot. And once he's in it, I mean, see, the, the best part of this is Thorne continues even right up to the very, very end to try to convince himself that this is just a kid and I yeah. shouldn't do this. Yeah. But mm-hmm. Warner's character is convinced right from the start that, hey, we got to do something about this. These people are dying and I, these, these glitches in my photographs. Now there's a photograph of me, which looks like I'm going to have my death coming shortly. And I, I want to avoid that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's a really innovative way they set him in. Mm-hmm. I love it. No, it's fantastic. And uh yeah, I you know, it's like I I certainly had a 
I certainly had new appreciation for the the first one watching it, and I have an appre- I do have an appreciation for this trilogy now that I've seen it all. And um, I, you know, I'm I'm grateful. I I have a feeling because of the fact that I knew this was your favorite horror movie, we'd probably get here at some point in what in uh, talking about it. And uh, it's been it's been really great to uh, talk to you about it. And you know, on this on this episode as well as just over the years, just you know, and starting to starting to appreciate. Um, just just basically kind of appreciating where this franchise is coming from. So I I uh thank you for uh suggesting that we uh do this or I can't remember who suggested it. I think I might brought it up because of I might have brought it up because of the fact that I knew it was your favorite horror movie and the forty fifth anniversary was coming up and then and then you might have brought up the trilogy. I don't know how, how it came up. I'm I'm grateful that I know this franchise now, and uh, I have a, I certainly have a more appreci- a greater appreciation for what this franchise does. Well, look, I always appreciate the ability to talk about the Omen. Anytime I can say nice things about the Omen trilogy and get people to watch, and the fact that I got you to watch the second and third one just that's a win for me right there. <laughs> but I also appreciate you, and you know, over the years we've we've done a bunch of these. You know, normally we talk about really shitty movies. Yeah. This time we happen to talk about a really great franchise with a kind of weak middle and uh, you know decent ending there. Mm-hmm. So that gets that gets me good. But again, thank you as always. Much appreciative. You know, I've, I always I always love being able to come on Sonic Center and talk with you about movies. Yeah, this is this is actually one of the better uh, better uh, sets of movies that we've been able to talk about, isn't it? Um, yes, we, we were able to talk about the end of days in this franchise without actually talking about the movie end of days. That's a win this, right there. This is very true, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Phil, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, my pleasure. Have a great day now, Brian. All right. I'd like to thank Phil for joining me on the podcast today. It's always great to talk to him. Uh, we're going to have one more discussion this October. Uh, it's about 1996 horror movies, and that's going to be a fun uh, talk uh, for us to do. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Um, there's going to be a lot of great things coming up in the last half of this year, including a long, in-depth discussion with uh, Matthew Saliba about his larger body of work. And I hope you check that out, uh, 1996 horror movies. And 1996 in general, I'm uh, going to start reaching out to people and trying to nail down a date to uh, record that one and how that record is going to go. Um, but also, uh, we'll for sure have a, uh, have a uh, podcast on documentaries, which I'm really looking forward to sharing with you guys. Uh, that's it for the Sonic Cinema Podcast for this episode. My name's Brian Scuttle, and uh, thank you for checking out us out, as always, on www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.